Please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. Genesis 12 and verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, your word that won't fade, won't wither away, stands forever, accomplishes all your intended purposes. And so to that end, Lord, we pray, would you accomplish your purpose through your word amongst us this morning? Teach us, instruct us, remind us, encourage, rebuke, build our faith, help us to see Jesus, Lord. In and through your word today, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. I had a couple who kind of took me in when I first left home and uh, was a young single guy in the military. This couple I met at church the very first Sunday had me over to their house that night. It was one of those kind of things, and I was immediately part of their Bible study. And, and then all the social events and everything that went along with the norms of life, they really took me in as their own. Uh, I remember they were very gracious to me uh, just a few months, weeks, I think, after getting to know me. They returned to the mainland uh, for Christmas holidays, and I wasn't going back. And they, they gave me the keys to their house and their cars and let me house it for them, which as a young Guy living on base, that was a big Christmas present. And uh, it was later, after lots of Bible studies, I had lots of questions, that they gave me a book, uh, which I think they gave me other books. It wasn't a book that surprised me. It was the book they gave me. And they gave me this book by Steve Brown. It's out of print now. It's titled, uh, No More Mr. Nice Guy, How Not to Be a Christian Doormat. And I looked at them, and I read the title, and I said, what is, what is this? Wait, is that me? You mean I'm, I'm a nice guy? I'm, I'm a people pleaser? What? I was completely unself-aware. I had no idea that's who I was. And it kind of offended me. 
Now, a few years later, I've come to realize that they saw something in me that I was unaware of myself, that I was a people pleaser, that I struggled to say no when I was asked to do things, that I looked at what other people thought of me. And so fast forward a few years later, uh, I was at a conference and I saw a little book called When People Are Big and God Is Small by Ed Welch. And I thought, I need to buy this because the, the, the subtitle is Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. And I thought, that's me. The fear of man, that's, that's, that's what I have. And I still have that original copy that I bought with, uh, uh, from that conference. I read it uh, more than once, and I would commend it to you. And I want to share something from that book with you today. Um, first, let me just say that you can call it whatever you want. People-pleasing, uh, fear of man, peer pressure. Uh, but, but at its core, what it really is is the fear of man. It, it is seeing God less than who He is and people greater than they are and being afraid to the point of what people think of you that you change the way you act. It is being so affected by this fear that you change your behavior to alter their perception or your perceived perception of their perception about who you really are. Do you get where I'm going? It often involves deception. It can attempt to distort the truth and reality. The fear of man can become so controlling that it can cripple your life. It can bring you to the point where you can't function or can't function like you should. In the book, Welch starts out in the first chapter talking about a high school experience that he had. It was senior, uh, his senior year, it was awards day, and he was admittedly shy and self-conscious. And the vice principal, after many awards are given, gets up to give what is the the big one, and he starts to read this biography, and it's a very vague, intentionally vague biography, and he begins thinking to himself, oh no, this, this could be describing me, and he begins contemplating then the distance to the stage and asking himself questions like, would I walk funny to the front, and am I going to trip going up the stairs, and would people think I'm a jerk for winning the award, and what would I say for the acceptance speech? And then Ed prayed silently, God, please don't let me get this award. Sweating in his seat, he heard the name announced, Rick Wilson. This is what he writes. Rick Wilson? I couldn't believe it. Of all people, no one even thought he was a candidate. You can imagine my reaction. Relief? No way. I felt like a total failure. Now they would, Now, what would people think of me? They knew I was up for the award and someone else was chosen. What a loser I was. Okay, I'm guessing by the Snickers that I'm not the only one who struggles with this here. Um, I'm guessing that I'm not the only one who this resonates with. Many of us fear what other people think of us. We forget about our identity in Christ so much throughout our weeks, throughout our daily decisions, things we say, things we think, things we do, that we are saying things and doing things not in faith, but out of fear of what other people think of us. Sometimes this fear can seem justified. It's easy to justify this. We look at this account of Abram and Sarai going down to Egypt, 
And we get the sense that they had fear for a good reason. Because what Abram feared is actually what came true, except that it was much worse than what he feared. I mean, you understand they felt vulnerable. They were on someone else's turf. The, the, the famine had to throw them off. Uh, this was a new country. This was a new people. Sarai was a beautiful woman. Abram allowed that fear then to lead him to make some really dreadful decisions. He was deceptive. He put his wife at great risk. And he ends up being the culprit of these plagues that come down not only on another people, but on one who is the most powerful man in that part of the world. The chief victim, being Pharaoh, would have had every right to do to Abram what he feared greatestly. Greatest. Ultimately, Abram acted like God didn't even exist. Or if he did, that he wasn't powerful enough to save him. Abram reacted in fear rather than in faith. Whenever we find ourselves living in fear instead of walking in faith, we risk making foolish decisions as well. And so Welch in his book asks a number of diagnostic questions. I won't read them all, but I do want to read a couple because I think questions are particularly helpful in helping us see not only the depth of our sin, but the pervasiveness of it. In other words, you may have heard that story about the award show and thought, eh, that's not me. But maybe there's some other areas of the struggle in your heart. Do you ever struggle with peer pressure? Are you overcommitted, unable to say no to requests from others? Do you need something from your spouse or someone else like respect or appreciation? Or admiration? Do you ever feel like you might be exposed as an imposter? Do you get easily embarrassed? Are you constantly second-guessing decisions out of a fear of what others might think? Do you see how this can be crippling? Are you jealous of others and what they have? Do you avoid people? He actually goes on to ask a lot of other questions, but I think those are just enough maybe to cover the basis for most of us, that we can see how... This fear of man is something that can affect all of us. And the theme for this passage then today that we want to consider is that we are called to walk by faith, trusting God in all matters, even when things don't make sense or don't seem like they will work out. What Abram faced was clearly a trial, the famine itself, and then the situation in Egypt. How he handled it didn't go so well. Abram and Sarai, they followed God's leading. They're in Canaan. God shows them the land. This is the land. Takes them from north to south, as we saw last week. He says, this is the land I'm going to give your descendants. And then, almost suddenly, after that that verse, there's a famine. So we don't know how much time has passed. We don't have any other details. We have no explanation of Abram's reaction, only that he decided to travel to Egypt because, as the text says, the famine was severe in the land. So it was enough to get his attention. We've got to do something. Now, again, we can see how this is a test of Abram's faith. He's still new to the land of Canaan. He uh, sees people around, these Canaanites. He's not sure of them, and we come to find out they're not the most hospitable of people. The need for, for food and water, that's a basic human need. That will get our attention when we don't have food and water for ourselves and our family. And yet there is no indication 
that Abram responds by looking to God in faith. In other words, Abram took matters into his own hands, responding in fear rather than in faith and taking his family to Egypt. In verse 11, we see the plan emerge. If you look there, he says, when, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you're a beautiful woman in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. I don't know if someone was just clearing their throat, but when I read that passage initially, it almost sounded like someone groaned, and for good reason. <laughs> I mean, what a position to put your beloved in. Based on the assumptions, the assumptions of how others would perceive Sarai, clearly a fear of man, he devises a plan to deceive. Now, I have to say, Abram was right. Exactly what he feared is what happened. The Egyptians did find Sarai beautiful. Even more and possibly beyond Abram's imagination, the news travels further than he expects. It goes all the way to Pharaoh's court and suddenly she is taken away. But this does not justify his actions. It's also important to note that Abram's plan includes a partial truth. Now, we haven't covered this yet, or if if I did, I don't remember mentioning it when we dealt with the genealogy of Terah. But Terah was Sarai's father as well. Sarai was Abram's half-sister. They had different mothers. And we dealt with this earlier on in Genesis of how this worked and why this was necessary in the early history. But there was this half-truth that Sarai was indeed a half-sister. We learn later in Genesis when we get to chapter 20, we'll go ahead and peek there in verse 13, It's speaking where Abraham at this point is speaking. And when God caused me to wonder from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So this plan, this, this plan of deception went all the way back to when they were in Ur before they ever left. And we're going to see he's going to try it again. Thankfully, he grows a little bit in the second experience. We're going to see that work of God's grace in his life. But my point in saying all that is that even though there's some truth in it, it's clear his intention is to deceive. He knew how the Egyptians would interpret his statement, that that she was no one's wife because she was his sister. And of course, the risks that he brings to Sarai is horrendous. And then the, the consequences of this plan upon Pharaoh's house really are treacherous even though he knew what he was saying was half true, he also knew he was deceiving. Look in verse 13, we see his intention, that it may go well with me. There's Abram's motivation, that it may go well with me. In other words, I'm looking out for number one, to the point that I'm willing to let my wife lay her life down? For my sake, that it may go well with me. And then he adds that my life may be spared for your sake. Well, what a guy. (laughs) Really? We would do well, however, to see this as a warning, as a warning of caution, because our own tendencies to do this are often so subtle. 
We don't see it coming. This isn't like a freight train where we transition from faith to fear. It's often very, very slippery in that transition. So let me be clear in saying there's no justifying Abram's lack of faith and subsequent deception. Consider the words of James that exhort us when we face trials. This is clearly a trial. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Abram is a, this is a classic case right here of being double-minded. Abram is being double-minded in this situation and he was thus rendered unstable in all his ways. You see the instability. I mean, so many things could have gone wrong here. This instability then creates a crisis, not just for him, but for everybody around him. And so looking in verse 14, the story unfolds. This is where the crisis comes out. Abraham enters Egypt. The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Interesting the way that Moses puts that there. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. I think I think Moses is, is using different language here instead of her first name to describe how she was being viewed as an object. That was how she was being treated at this point. Yeah, it's worse than Abram originally thought. Not only were they going to find her beautiful, she was going to end up whisked off to Pharaoh's court. Guess what? Everything that he had done to take matters into his own hands, to be the control freak, to solve the problem himself has now rendered him him, him completely useless. He has no control now. She's gone. She's completely out of his hands. And then the story has the first of a strange twist. Abram is given this great wealth by Pharaoh in what seems to be almost like a dowry given for the hand of Sarai in marriage to the king of Egypt. And what, it may, what makes it so strange is that Abram had lied that it may go well with me. And then in verse 16 we read, And for her sake he dealt well with Abram. This is a case of uh, fear of man and manly or human wisdom coming together. He was rewarded in the wisdom of man with great wealth given in the form of these animals and servants. But I think we could all say, knowing how the story ends, be careful what you wish for. When you and I act according to our own fears and our own worldly wisdom, we can get what appears to be a good outcome. You fudge a little bit on your taxes and you avoid maybe saving or spending a few extra dollars. We pad our resume with false claims and maybe we do get the job that we've always dreamed of. We exaggerate our accomplishments to receive the honors of others. But beware, as Numbers 32, 23 says, beware lest your sins will find you out. When we lie or sin in any way, we walk in the way of fear instead of faith, and surely our sins will find us out. And this is exactly what unfolds in verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. The lie that Abram and Sarai had devised in secret 
that they thought was going to save them or preserve them suddenly becomes very public. And, it, and, it, and it's made public in a way that it's exposed for what it is, that it's a lie. The king of all of Egypt and all of his house are now plagued with some kind of physical infirmary. And I have to think that if there was anything, you know, Abram did all of this to save his own neck. If there was anything that was about to set this guy up for execution, it was this right here. I mean, here you've got the most powerful man in this area who has been made sick because of Abram's own foolish decisions. I mean, people have been killed for much less. And yet we see this second twist, this strange twist in the story. It's a deliverance, a deliverance by the hand of Yahweh in grace toward Abram and Sarai, even though they were faithless and even though they sinned. Pharaoh calls Abram, and in verse 18, this is what he says to him, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning her, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Because of God's power over Pharaoh's life and health and household, Pharaoh actually feared seeking retribution. He saw the God of this guy, Abram, had the power to bring this plague on his house, and he instead sends them both away. Sarai is spared her purity, and Abram is spared his life in what seems like the most unlikely of outcomes. I mean, you don't see this coming when you start this story, how this is all going to unfold. And this is where we see God's grace toward his elect. He shows mercy toward them both. He delivers them in a way that only He can get the glory. Let me say this again. When God works, He often does things in a way that only He can get the glory. We talked about this last week. It's the upside-down nature, the backwards working of the kingdom of God. He does things in a way that baffle us, that don't make sense. And it's to put His glory on display. Abram is not even recorded as as saying a word in response to Pharaoh. He did not even have a word to utter. He cannot claim anything for having any reason for his salvation. They are saved by the mighty and loving one who called them to himself and by him alone. And then to add to this gracious deliverance, they leave wealthier than they came with all the gifts that Pharaoh had given them. Strange twist. Now, you probably see the parallel. There's another story coming in the Bible. It's in the next book called Exodus. And the people of God go to the same country. And they're treated unjustly for 400 years. And they too are delivered by the mighty hand of God. And do you remember the twist there as well? That they are sent away with all the wealth of Egypt. Remember how they were given all of that stuff? There's a parallel that's being set up here that God's showing this is who I am and this is how I work. It is important when we look at this story, though, to consider the consequences of sin. The repercussions of sinful choices that we make are often not removed from our lives. It's true that often our sins will find us out. So we are warned then from this example of Abram to not walk in the fear of man, but instead walk in faith. That we're not to walk according to human wisdom, but by the word of God. We are not to take shortcuts in faith. We're to trust God in His timing 
with His results. Rather, as again, the passage from James, when we face trials, we are to count it all joy. That we can let the work be done in our lives to produce steadfastness so that it can have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's where God's trying to take each and every one of us. And He uses trials to accomplish this. The famine that Abram faced was certainly a trial. It wasn't a trick. God doesn't work like that. God wasn't picking on him. He wanted his faith to grow. He wanted Abram to see that the promises that I made to you, I'm going to keep them. Even when it seems like you're going to die and the line's going to be cut off and and Sarah's still barren and she's not able to have a child, I'm going to take care of all that. You just trust me. This is what God's trying to do in Abram's life. That full effect of trusting in God alone, regardless of our circumstances, that faith in Him is then credited to us as righteousness. This is what the outcome of of Abram's story is, that eventually he's going to begin to to, to get it, that, that God is faithful, God is trustworthy, He keeps His promises. Where there are effects of sin, and we again are not always spared those effects in this temporal earthly life, we are saved from our sins and all the effects in redemption. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Deliverance is ours permanently and eternally by faith in Jesus, the Redeemer. So all of this is going to get dealt with, even though we may deal with temporal, earthly things that seem like it's going to end it all. So think today where and how you're tempted to lean away from faith and into fear. Is it what other people think of you? Is it your need for respect or for admiration? Is it a sense that you need to accomplish something or feel productive? Is it how you're defined by status or possessions? Look to Jesus in faith. And consider the words, we've gone back to Hebrews 11 a number of times as we've talked about Abram so far. Abraham, as his name's going to become, he's in this list in Hebrews 11. We've gone back to that over and over, the, the hall of faith as it's called. These are the words that follow that chapter. In the beginning words of chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, look to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this, this snapshot of your grace in Abram and Sarai's life. That even in the foolishness and the lack of faith that Abram exhibited, that you, you delivered him. That the story doesn't end there. That the promises that you made so far back are still on track. He has no idea. We wouldn't if you hadn't given us your word. But you have, and so we see that you're faithful. You always keep your promises. Everything you say you will do, you do. 
and you're trustworthy. And so today, Lord, cause our eyes to be fixed on the author of our faith, Jesus, that we can look to Him and see Him and know that in Him You have made it crystal clear that You keep all of Your promises. The fulfillment of every promise and prophecy given exhibited in the person and work of Christ. Cause us to see Him and trust Him, to love Him, and to walk in faith and not in fear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.